listening to the Ed Reach Network. Ed Gamer, episode 47 on Ed Reach. Is Khan Academy a Monday solution? This is Ed Gamer for Saturday, April 7th, 2012. Ed Gamer is part of the Ed Reach Network, edreach.us, giving education a voice. A big deja vu voice. <laughs> this show is dedicated to education gaming on any platform. We'll give you the education angle on any type of games, ranging from tabletops to MMOs. We will discuss how these games impact student learning and how they can be used effectively within the classroom. I am Zach. I'm Jerry. And our guest today is Sylvia Martinez. Sylvia? Sylvia? Tell us a little bit about yourself. Hi. Good morning. I'm Sylvia Martinez. I'm the president of Generation Yes. So we're a nonprofit, and we work with schools all over the U.S., and uh, primarily around the issues of technology integration and having students help with the solutions and and creating more opportunities for technology use in schools. Um, We want to empower students to own their own learning and be part of the solution to making education better for everyone. Okay, Jerry. I am Jerry James, and I am a visual arts teacher at Schaumburg High School in Schaumburg, Illinois. And my name is Zach Gilbert, and I'm your host. And I'm a sixth grade social studies and language arts teacher from Normal, Illinois. And I have to apologize to both my my co-host and to my guest. Um, I made a slight error on the recording last time. This is actually the second time that we're going through this, and I cannot thank uh, Sylvia and Jerry to hang on. And by the way, the last show was awesome. It was really good. (laughs) It was really good. And I'm sure this show is going to be just as good. So I'm sure there's people out there that have done something like that before. So uh, we're just going to – what's – never? No. No, I've done it. I've totally (laughs) – me, I've – yeah. yeah, it uh, so we we had a great show last time, and like I said, we're gonna make it even better this time. It'll so, be the secret lost episode where history is written of Ed Gamer. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I'm sure somebody will write a book about that someday. <laughs> okay, so Sylvia, can you give us a little bit uh, some background and how you came into you know Generation Yes? Um, yeah, uh, I have had a lot of different uh, careers, and getting to Generation Yes. Um, I started out as an electrical engineer, got a, a bachelor's in electrical engineering from UCLA, go Bruins, um, way back in uh, whenever, whenever. And I went to work for a company that was working on a research project called the GPS Satellite Navigation System. And that was a fascinating project. It was it was completely impossible at the time. The The hardware hadn't been invented yet. The software wasn't fast enough. It didn't exist. The computers weren't fast enough. Um, the parts, in, it was just a theory that it could even be done. And it was, it, it was fascinating and an incredible amount of fun, hard work. And uh, now I have one in my car and my phone and Probably tomorrow there'll be one in my shoe. Or <laughs> it was it was it was fun being part of that legacy. Um, after that, I took some time off when I had kids, and I got really interested in learning. Um, kids are sort of like little living laboratories of how how humanity learns, and um, started doing a lot of reading. And I got involved with a friend of mine who was working in the educational software field. And after a few years, I got a job at Davidson and Associates. The uh, the famous Math Blaster people, and I worked as a producer on a number of different products, 
um, algebra blaster and all kinds of, oh, everything from money, learning about money to all different things. And um, I got a master's in education around that time. And then I sort of went off and did a, did some consumer game development for a while. We made console games and pinball games and all sorts of different things. I was in charge of develop, design, development, programming, everything. And But I missed education. And then I came back and started to work for Generation Yes. And I'm president of the uh, organization right now. Um, and because I really feel strongly that we're not giving kids experiences in K-12 education that lead to really understanding math and science and engineering. I, I know people are calling it STEM, but um, a lot of times the T and the E are completely left out of K-12. Oh, and Jerry would be upset because he wants an A added oh, in there. Steam. The STEAM. STEAM. I, I yeah, completely steam. agree. I completely agree. Um, and when I think you give kids these, these experiences – especially with technology, because technology is so versatile when you let kids actually make things using technology. Um, they, they learn so much, and it's a much better path to formal math and science education, which should obviously come at some point. But I think we do a lot of formalizing um, before kids are ready for it. And as far as the A part goes with STEAM, I completely agree um, in my experience, you have to kind of stop kids from from adding their own artistic spin on when you give them time and give them space to do projects of their own choice and things they're really personally invent, invested in. You see the artistic side of them come out because they they love what they're doing and they want to make it beautiful. Um, I think all of those things go together. Well, in the in the technology and, you know. As somebody who studies history, but you know, looking at those that were able to get an education, you know, hundreds of years ago, you needed to have the money, and books were looked upon as leveling the playing field. If you were able to get books, then you would be able to learn uh, just as much as somebody that had a lot of money. And I look at technology the same way: is that if all students had access to, you know, technology, a computer, a tablet. And internet access, uh, I look at it as a great equalizer, no matter where, uh, what side of town you're from. And but it allows that growth and you know the constructive idea that you know they're learning as they're as they're doing, um, and learning is is coming out of that, which kind of gets us to our first topic, doesn't it? Uh, which some people would say would be, would some say that Khan Academy is constructive? I've heard people claim that, but I don't believe it's true. So, so Sylvia, and like I said, I don't know how I missed this because we've had uh, several articles on EdReach discussing Khan Academy, and you've put together a wonderful four-part piece on Khan Academy, and kind of give us a little background on how this came together and, and why you did it. Um, sure. It, it actually started because of a TED Talk, or two TED Talks. Um, I wrote a blog post comparing... Saul Khan's TED Talk versus Conrad Wolfram's TED Talk. And Saul Khan presented his Khan Academy. Conrad Wolfram talked about how uh, mathematics is misunderstood, that we're, what we really teach is a lot of arithmetic and calculation, and that's the least interesting part and, of, of mathematics. 
Um, and what I wrote about was that it's very difficult to articulate between these two very, very different viewpoints. And most people would say, oh, it's technology and education. Look, Wolfram Alpha, Khan Academy, technology, all good, right? But these are incredibly different worldviews about how people learn. So I got a lot of you know, comments from people saying, well, you know, what is it you mean? I don't understand. And so I wrote this blog post, which got bigger and bigger and bigger, and eventually I split it into four parts, about some of this misunderstanding of how people learn and specifically how people learn math and, and how those myths get ingrained into our teaching. Um, and the, so the, you know, the first part, the first blog is about myths like um, math is a series of skills that we learn one step at a time. And if you miss a step, you can't go on. And we can test kids to find out which steps are weak and then drill them on that particular step. And then the, the sort of whole picture will come alive and kids will understand the whole process. Um, and that's just a complete myth. That is not the way people learn. People learn by making connections with what they already know in a very, very personal way. Um, and, you know, so that that's part of this myth that Khan simply fills these gaps uh, in students' heads. And I think we we like Khan because it's comforting when something supports our own view of the world. And I think Khan supports a view of the world that's 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 instructionist, that's sort of the old-fashioned way to teach math, um, and and that's why it's gotten so much acclaim. So, um, and <laughs> trying to think about my you know learning of math and how you know there's I struggled. I, I thoroughly struggled with math, and it was probably up until uh, middle school, and I tried to learn fractions, and it just did not make sense to me. It wasn't really until, until I had a job. I was really out of college, and I had a project that it was part of a job, and I needed to use Excel. And Excel actually helped me learn math. Uh, it was one of those things that uh, if I couldn't, I could go online. I could research mm -hmm. different formulas. I could. I got a book. I collaborate collaborated with others, and it was one of those things that I was able to learn math um, through this program. Mm -hmm. And that that to me is is that kind of what you see math education where it's it's inside of me. I want to learn it. I have a goal, and I'm reaching out and gathering information in order to put this together. Well, yeah, I think I think that that you've you know you've articulated uh, pretty much what people hope math could be. Um, you know, you had an authentic problem that you needed to solve. You were coming up with the solution. You weren't being told that there was a specific path that you had to sort of memorize to get to the solution. Um, you found an appropriate tool, and I don't think it matters whether a teacher gave you an appropriate tool or you found it on your own. I don't think that's the point. You found an appropriate tool that has a level of complexity to it where you can, you can use, you know, it's what they call low threshold, high ceiling. You can start to e fairly easily use Excel for simple problems, but you, you can, you could probably spend the rest of your life learning all the features and the, the really deep way that Excel can support, um, you know, calculations and, and different, different ex expressions. Um, 
you found a, a, a collaborative, you know, collaborative people, um, expertise in a community. You found source materials that helped you understand the resource better. Um, all of those things can happen in a classroom if a teacher is looking to put those pieces together. I'm, I don't think that's the way people look at Khan Academy. I think they look at it as a way um, to help kids understand textbook problems, which aren't real problems. You know, Khan Academy, when you look at it, these aren't real world problems. These are how to solve the problems in the textbook. Right. Because we know, we know what the problem is. The problem is that kids have a test that they're going to have to take and they need to do well on the test. That's the only authentic problem that's being solved here. So it's basically playing, it's, it's a tool to play the game that we're playing now, right. except that we're playing the wrong game. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. And, you know, there's, there's also vocabulary confusion. We talk about problem solving, and some people mean authentic problems like, you know, how do you build a building or how do you, you know, knock down a tree and not kill your friends and, you know, things like that, <laughs> um, versus solving problems in the, in, in, at the end of the chapter. Just because they're both called problem solving, there's a huge difference yeah, between right. those two. So when people say, oh, it teaches kids problem solving, teachers have to be really careful about what that means. So what else, uh, what else did you have within the, the con articles? Um, well, I talked a little bit about algorithms as well, because this is another folktale that people have in their heads, is that it, it, the best way to learn math is smart people come up with a trick or, or a step-by-step -step method. You know, in math language, it's called algorithms. Um, foil is an is example. Um, carrying the one is an example. Um, you know, picking out key words in a word problem and tr translating them into symbols is, a, is, is another one. Um, and those algorithms then should be taught to children. You drill them in the algorithm. And if they learn the algorithm, then they will be able to solve the problems you give them that fit that algorithm. And there's, you know, there's a logical consistency if you define the problem that way. The problem is, is that algorithms actually hurt a lot of kids in that they, they start to believe that there's some secret rule that they just haven't been told yet. <laughs> and if they wait long enough, someone will tell them the secret rule. And then they can solve the problem. That was the disaster for me in math because I'm a big picture person. Mm -hmm. and, and that's a small picture thing. You know, here's the here's the way to solve that problem. But you're not telling the kids what you're actually why you're solving the problem or or what the actual you know basis of the problem is. It's well, just, I don't even I don't. Yeah, I don't even think that telling them why you're giving them this is helpful. Yeah. You, you have to set up and this is the skill of the teacher. You have to set up age appropriate and it's not just age, it's just some kids have earlier numeracy skills than others. You have to set up appropriate situations. And games work really well to yeah. challenge the kids to develop their own representations about how these things work. And I know it's well-meaning. We all say, well, if I just teach the kids about the carry the one thing, we'll all get to the answer faster. The problem is, is you can't rush this development. You can't jump kids ahead just because there's a test coming. And we have this sort of mentality, you know, in the U.S. that everything can be made more efficient. If there's something that takes two days, we can make it take one day. If it takes a day, we can make it take two hours. And it's like, wait a second. 
you can't, you know, just, just stuff learning into kids' heads. It doesn't work that way, no well, matter I, how well-meaning we are about it. And we're, we all learn at a different rate. We all, I mean, I, I bring this up constantly. Uh, Sir Ken Robinson talks about how, you know, we basically group kids by manufacture date. Mm-hmm. And it, that that makes no sense. We're all at different levels. Now, there's problems with socially, you know, having different kids of different ages, you know, together. That can cause problems. But, you know, we're basically within my school district, um, you know, we're getting to the point where we have IEPs right now, which are individual education uh, plans. And those are for students that have learning disabilities. And, you know, they have certain needs that need to be uh, monitored and helped out by a resource teacher and by the classroom teachers. But we're almost to the point now where we are going to create individual plans for every student. And I think technology, I think the hope is, is that technology will make that easier because we'll be able to map and plan out where the student is at and what they are good or bad at. Mm-hmm. But I'm, what I'm hearing you say is that, that that might not even really be the best thing to do because we're basing that on basically common core standards. We're basing that on the old uh, of what we expect them to learn at a certain point of time. It, it's it's a tough it's a tough distinction. Again, the language is is crucial. Um, you know, if you're talking about discrete skills and saying, well, we're going to personalize learning, and what that means is every child will do what we want on a different day. That's that's not what I'm talking about. You know, the the, the what we want is is you know Johnny learns two digit two, uh, digit two digit addition on Tuesday. Well, Sally learns it on Wednesday. That's fine. That's not personalized learning. It's something that computers are good at. Computers are good at keeping track of lots of data. Um, and when you you know when you have a computer and you want to solve that problem. It's it's very difficult. It, you know, it, you tend to look at the problem as as let's chop it up as much as possible. Let the computer keep track of the you know accounting, and therefore you've got personalized learning. I mean, I see that as a big problem coming down the train track. Well, that's that, yeah, the, this misdefinition. Okay, so that's it's better than what is going on now. Is that students? I mean, <laughs> I guess there is a certain path that that. The districts, the schools, the state, and now you know Common Core that the government sees that you should be going down this this road, this one path, mm-hmm. and that's that's where we should, I guess, that's what we should be on. I mean, there are certain states that actually say that on uh, by the end of the quarter they should know this, 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 and this. What you're saying is that that's that's totally ridiculous because. There are so many more paths that can well, be but, taken. Well, let's not confuse endpoint and path. Let's, you know, it's process and product. If we were talking about giving teachers a lot of agency over the curriculum where they could be playing games, and that, you know, you want to have a goal. I mean, this, these teachers just aren't sort of fumbling in the dark. You hope is that yes, we do want kids to be able to add and subtract at the at the end of you know some period of time. But how do we get there? Um, and I don't believe you get there by 
just handing kids algorithms. It looks like the best shortcut, but it's not. Um, and handing out the algorithms on different days isn't the answer either. I think we have to be really careful about student autonomy. And that's another thing I talk about in this blog post. Um, autonomy is the feeling that you can solve a problem on your own. And I think we spend a lot of time telling kids they're wrong about things and then expecting them to be resilient enough to keep trying until we get the right answer. Um, where instead of, where instead there's a lot of, you know, the constructivist uh, mathematics educators who allow the kids to come to that conclusion on their own, where you have a classroom environment where the kids are actually arguing their own points and the teacher's not saying, no, you know, be quiet. Of course, five times 12 isn't 78, you know, just uh, here and I'll show you why. But the kids are saying, uh, well, I'm going to show you that it is 78. And they'll argue out their point, maybe in front of the class. And you have to have a class that's experienced in this kind of interaction and a teacher that knows how to facilitate this kind of interaction where a student can defend their wrong answer until they decide that they come to a better answer. Because when you tell a kid that they're wrong, they're wrong, they're wrong, all it does is convince them that if they wait long enough, someone will tell them the right answer and that they don't have the competency to come up with it themselves. So, and, yeah, ahead. building this kind of classroom environment is very is a very skillful activity for a teacher. So we just completed a map on Rome and I'm sitting here thinking that, OK, and so they they used maps and other resources to try to, you know, put this put this map together. Now they would come up and say, "Okay, how does this look?" And I might say, "Okay, well," and, and so I'm telling them, "Okay, your app, the, the Apennines are not correct, and the Alps are not correct." So what you're saying is that really the students should be discussing it together and deciding, you know, is this right or not, and collaborating in that format. There's a lot of great uh, videos that show that kind of classroom in action where, you know, kids get in small groups and maybe, you know, peer editing is very common in English yes. class and it's done really badly and it's done really well. Yeah. <laughs> it's, you know, it's the skill of the teacher that makes the difference. So um, in the, in the end, criticism, learning to to have a conversation with someone where you differ, your opinions differ, but then you come to, you know, consensus. Now, Everyone goes, oh, well, the kids will just decide that two plus two is eight. And it's like, well, no, they won't. They really won't. No. <laughs> they want somebody, the right answer. Yeah, and, and somebody there will, will definitely point it out. Yeah, it's kind of obvious when, you, when you're working with real objects and, and you're talking about something that two plus two is not eight. Yeah. So, okay, I get to the point where – and my mentor many years ago you know, would, would do the, something similar to this where – the kids would collaborate and then they would come up with um, what they feel is almost like the answer key or this is the this is how we feel the map should look and then do I just pop that pop my my version up on the board and just have them compare and contrast and just leave it at that or I don't know why are you making a map uh, well, that's that's the one thing we <laughs> geography wise and this is based on the standards, you know, they need to understand uh, the importance of how civilizations are placed and the geography around them and why, 
you know, why was Rome placed along the Tiber River? Mm-hmm. How did geography play an important role, um, you know, in protecting the peninsula of the Italian peninsula? Um, you know, how were they able to grow food? So you're making multiple connections, mm-hmm. connections there. So, you know, creating a map um, is one of those skills that, you know, I kind of work with them because that's something that down the road, standardized test is, mm-hmm. is going to be using something like that. So, I mean, not to dwell on this too long, but, you know, would there, I mean, I assume that some of the kids get parts of their map fairly you know, accurately, and then other yes. parts are, you know, aren't. And so right. maybe if they talk to each other with you guiding the conversation, obviously, mm-hmm. um, and were had to defend their own choices in their own maps, and then go back and redraw them. I mean, would that just be too much time spent on this? No, no. I, it, it, and part of the problem, I'm wondering, because now that we've been discussing this, I wonder, you say some kids are ready for certain types of math problems as they go along. Mm-hmm. Some might not. Some of this is, is spatial. Mm-hmm. You know, being able to look at a, at a map and be able to uh, look at different parts of it and say, well, the Tiber River should start here because it's in between these two points and it, you know, moves up, you know, in this direction and goes through the Apennine Mountains. So I can, some of that is spatial. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the one thing that I used to do a long time ago was to have kind of a map and, and the kids would just label it. It was just rote memorization. Mm-hmm. Um, what I've moved to is what I call simple maps, which are basically, they kind of give a, they do a simple, especially with Italy, they just draw a little boot and they kind of put in the fertile land, you know, the mountains and information there. And then I can ask questions based upon that. Why was it important for, you know, Rome to be placed you know, uh, at this location, uh, how does the geography help protect, um, you know, uh, the Roman, you know, uh, empire in this area. So, you know, I used to do that rote memorization. I I think I've moved it up a little bit further on Bloom's taxonomy in order to, uh, get a better understanding of, you know, that formative assessment. Are they really understanding mm-hmm. the geography and why things are placed where they're at? You know, why do we have all, all of our major cities in the United States? Are Most of them are along bodies of water. You know, what's the reason for that? Uh, getting them to think about something like that. So as I was talking about the map, and I'm sitting here telling them, you know, your mountains are wrong, and then they go back and then they try to correct that, Basically, and I do this in language arts, you know, they collaborate. They should work together and try to figure out what is, what should the map look like? Well, I think this is why uh, constructivist teaching is such an incredible, you know, skill for a teacher. Um, This doesn't happen overnight. You know, you might work on this for years like you have and come and every time you do it, you change it up a little bit. You you. Your your reflective practice is making your classroom a better place, you know, year after year so. after year. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, I, I um, hope so. There's you know, there's the joke about the teacher who's been teaching 14 years. Well, not really. She's been teaching one year, just 14 times. Right. You know, um, that's kind of a horrible <laughs> truth about yeah. a lot of, you know, a lot of the ways classrooms are run. You sort of get in a pattern and you, you go with it. Yeah, and I can't do that. There's no way. Every year, every unit I teach is always different. There's always something different. I add on to it. So, 
the collaboration piece that basically that would be better than what I was doing before is have them collaborate about it and come up with a map that's that's fairly accurate. Um, yeah, and you know, I think I think some of, one of the myths of constructionism is that the teacher never tells the students anything. You know, that right. they just sort of wander around out in the grassy barefoot barefoot in the grassy fields with flowers in their hair, and suddenly they stumble upon how to draw a map of Rome, and it just you know, it doesn't happen that way, and that's that's a silly uh, you know exaggeration. That that you know, some people call it discovery learning. I hate that term. It's not. It's it's a very skillful way that that a teacher can can really listen to students. And I think you know listening is a is an extremely important teaching skill. Mm-hmm. Um, and and think about what's going on in the heads of their students and understand the developmental process. Understand what you talked about with spatial sense and how that how that combines with the academic things that you want to teach and guide students so that they can bring up their own strengths and make their own connections. That's a really skillful teacher. And you could have a Khan Academy video on drawing maps where the kids press play and, you know, he does essentially what you did as a first year teacher and say, here's how you do it. Drip, 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 drip. You know, rivers are important, blah, blah, blah. Um, I don't think that's using the technology in any in any special way no and it's certainly not constructivist no and and i where i would like to take it and have it you know it wouldn't be the whole year i mean it would just be throughout and i've i've done it a little bit more this year than i have in the past you know i've used civilization and how they actively are um you know there's actually some uh scenarios where italy is involved and they can actually see Mm. what italy looks like in the game and they actually place a civilization in uh, a, a starting city on that peninsula. And, you know, depending on where they place it uh, will depend on how well their civilization will um, succeed or, or fail. And having kids discuss that, we've done this with, um, I think I've had Egypt and then um, and Mesopotamia also. And kids will put their civilizations in, start, in different starting points. And then have them discuss, well, why is your city doing so well? Well, I place it here because there's more iron ore here. There's, you know, there's fresh water. I have uh, fertile land, more fertile land than where you're located. And they get into that discussion. It's more, it, it, it's more actively learning it and. I was going to say discovery, but, <laughs> so, but you know, they're, okay. they're <laughs> the all right. Uh, yeah. Okay. So I feel bad. They're discovering. No, they're, but they're figuring things out. And I think that goes at a, at a much higher level and I can sit there and guide them along. I don't hold all the knowledge. I, you know, I, I tell the kids all the time, I'm very intelligent, but their 30 brains are much more powerful than my one. And they come up with things all the time that I could never imagine coming up with or thinking about. Mm-hmm. Um, I try to empower them that way also. Um, I think that's very important. They're, they're bright kids, every single one of them. You know, I might have some kids that grade-wise do not do very well, but hopefully throughout the year I show them that you have certain skills that even the kids that get top grades don't have. Well, and we need to figure out a way to utilize those. Right. And those kinds of simulations and, and you know, games 
can often bring out those kinds of skills. And you're just looking at a kid go, where'd that come from? You know, but they yeah. had it inside them all the time. They just yeah. never really connected it to what they were, what they were working on. You know, some kids um, are resistant to being told what to do. It's just in their nature. And there are kids who spend their entire school careers with their arms folded saying, you can't make me do this. And it's, it's such a waste. I mean, we waste so many brilliant minds in this battle of supremacy over you're going to carry the one the way I tell you, you know, or you're going to draw a map or you're going to, you know, write your name this way or that way. And, and these kids just won't give, give in. And you think that's exactly the kind of, you know, attitude we need for people who, who won't give up to solve a problem, who, you know, won't accept other people's status quo and other people's answers and want to discover things right. on their own. And yet we beat that out of kids and we reward the compliant ones who right. just say, okay, yes, the sky is blue and grass is green and aren't I smart? And, you know, and we pat them on the head and give them A's. Um, but that's the way it's always been. That's, it, that's how it's, it's always been, been done. done. Right. But these kids so, are different. They the, and all kids are different, and all yes. kids have different levels of resilience, of rebellion, of compliance, of you know, just natural talent in certain areas, right. and that's where personalized learning can happen. And you tell me a computer can figure that out, and you know, and, and do anything more than just give them a different flavor of the same multiple choice question. Yeah, I, I haven't seen that magic computerized assessment yet people keep talking about it but i see a lot of the same old stuff you know packaged in in new ways yeah it's it's you know those students that are, are not as compliant that don't fit within the box and it it takes a teacher to be very creative to come up with different ways uh to reach that child and and then we look at khan academy <laughs> and it's it's like I keep mentioning that one path. This is do some do some school I, I I fear do some schools some districts look at this and say this is how we are going to teach our students math. Look, I I can only that's the only natural outcome of this. We can we I hear people saying, oh, it's just a supplement. Oh, it's just all this. But that's the that's the obvious outcome is that a teacher can be replaced there. The, the reason that we have to work so hard to differentiate learning is because we ask for compliance in the first place. If we weren't asking for kids to all come up with the same answer, we wouldn't have to then go back and try and figure out how to differentiate learning. If you, if you ask a classroom of kids to solve a problem and then allow them to solve it in their own ways, they are differentiating their learning. I mean, literally, learning is always differentiated because learning happens in the head of the learner. Right. You can, you can change your teaching methods, but you can't force kids to learn things in any way, whether you call it differentiated learning or not. So to me, all this personalized learning and differentiated learning – We've caused the problem that that's trying to fix. We need and, to stop causing that problem. And we're enabling. Yeah. Um, because if, if the kids know how to play the game, if they're struggling yeah. with something, they know, just like at home, 
<laughs> sometimes you, you you get tired as a parent and you're just like okay here's what you need to do right. um and you do that enabling and you know teachers do that too um and it, it i think that causes a lot of problems that okay the teacher is eventually going to show us how to do this um and right. basically give us the answer right I mean, kids are conditioned, especially the winners. You know, the kids who are doing well in school have figured out the game. And if, if you're a teacher who's trying to change it up and do different kinds of assessment and different kinds of project-based learning, it's it's the kids who are the A students who are going to complain the most because they're the ones who are like, wait a second, you're changing the rules on me? Uh, this, yeah. You know, stop it. Yeah. That can that can cause some problems. Sure. It can cause some problems. Um, anything else with, with Khan? Um, you know, I, I think that people, uh, part of my blog series is a sort of a Q and a about what people say about con. And I think one of the, the most common things I hear is, well, can't it just be part of the solution? Can't we just have balance between kids, you know, constructing their own learning and teaching the kids how to pass the test? And, and I think, that we really have to think hard about that question because, first of all, there's not a lot of balance. I mean, I go, I visit a lot of classrooms all over the United States, and I can tell you that there's a lot of teachers lecturing and not a lot of constructive problem solving going on in a lot of classrooms. So, you know, if we were talking about, oh, it's 50-50, then yeah, sure, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't matter if you get up and lecture every once in a while. You have to do it. You have to tell kids simple things. It shouldn't go on for an hour. That's ridiculous. But um, the other part of the balance is a power balance. And the teacher telling you the answer is so overwhelming. It's so out of balance with the power in the classroom. The teacher has a lot of power over the students. They have you know, they're older, they're, it's their social power, they, they give grades, they can flunk you, they can say you're a bad student, they can talk to your parents. I mean, the teachers have a lot of power. So what they say goes. And, you know, to turn around and say, okay, one day you're going to do constructivist problem solving, and the next day I'm going to tell you how to solve a problem, that's not something you can balance. There's like an 800-pound gorilla of direct instruction on one side of this seesaw. And, you really have to work hard to untrain the kids out of turning to the teacher for all the answers. Right. Yeah, you do want to make them independent and be able to think you on do. your own. You, I mean, I can be there as a guide. I can help, uh, you know, help them out. And yeah, you, sometimes you know you do need to show them the answers. I mean, you know, or yeah. or you know, this is how I look at it. Do you see any problems with it? I don't. I don't mind that at all. Um, but it is. It is different. And well, you know, we have a very strange view of empowerment in this country. It's like, you know, we want kids who are empowered, but we want them to be empowered to do the things that we think are important. We yeah. want them to color outside the lines, but sit on the rug quietly. We, you know, we we want both. And, and you just can't have both. Sometimes you empower kids and they do things and find out things that are quite surprising or come up with ideas or processes or, or, or methods or interests that aren't what, what, what's going to be on the test on Friday. And somehow we have to sort of, you know, contend with all of those disparate elements and teachers have to be empowered too. You can't have empowered students if you don't have empowered teachers. Right. It just doesn't work that way. 
But aren't we kind of flip-flopped? Or, or because the power seems to be coming from above, um, you know, with standards. And like I said, oh. common core standards. This is what you need to teach. Uh, I have certain things. I'm teaching Rome right now. So I have the um, the pacing guide. I have the, the, uh, the concepts that should be taught. And I need to follow those. Mm-hmm. So that, to me, now teachers helped create that. And these are things that I feel are important. So what are your thoughts on that? How, do, how does that play with, you know, empowering the students? Well, you know, I, I think at some point you have to decide where the agency lies. If Common Core is a set of guidelines given to teachers who can then create a curriculum that works for them and their students, like you said, you were collaborating with other teachers to come up with, you know, new assessments and and all these kinds of things, I think that's a great thing to do. But if you were being handed a pacing guide and a set of worksheets and said, well, this matches the common core and you have to be on page 72 at 10 a.m., you know, on Tuesday, Mm -hmm. that's not a good outcome. So, you know, common core doesn't doesn't judge. I don't think I don't know between those two those two outcomes. Um, but I have a feeling it's going to be the pacing guide in a lot of places. Yeah. Unless teachers fight back and say, no, we're the professionals. We understand how to create a classroom situation that will result in these outcomes. And, and you'll see, you know, it's kind of this cognitive leap we're asking people to make that drilling kids on test items does not create the kind of learner we want. No. No, and it, it, there's there's too many variables. I mean, how how can you say, <laughs> you know, I understand them coming up with, uh, okay, in sixth grade or in middle school, they should have these concepts understood. The sh- students should. But how can you? It, it's almost impossible because every classroom, every teacher, every student is different, and they're going to have different ways to um, different ways of learning. So how can you put a timetable on something like that? Uh, look, it's 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 very difficult, and you know the the problem is is has been framed in a way that this is almost an obvious solution, but the problem I I think the the framing of the problem was wrong, um, and I, you know that's that's a huge systems issue that that all teachers end up dealing with. You know, how do you fight against the system? You you know that that the way, you, you know, the, the, the open-ended constructivist way that you teach is working for kids, and yet the system really forces you to not do that. So how do you, how do you align that? How do you, you know, deal with that cognitive dissonance in your head where you're being forced to do something that you know isn't in the best interest of the kids? And every teacher has to answer that question for themselves. Yeah, and it's it's like a big ball and chain attached to my ankle. You know, I'm wanting to go in one direction, and it's like I'm being pulled back. But you got to do this, and you got to do this, and you know, you have to finish Rome in the Middle Ages by the end of the school year. And it's just like, yeah, it's it's like I have um, <laughs> I have the bumpers on the in the bowling alley. <laughs> uh, you know, you have to stay on the in the lane. You can't go outside of it. Um, and that that does get a little. Um, get a little frustrating at times. It, it definitely confines confines teachers. You know, the one um, 
the one area, you know, so we have these these games, mm-hmm. um, and we know that games can kind of help out with that um, constructive constructivist type of learning, where the kids are actively they're not learning, um, you know, rote concepts of you know who what caused what are the three causes of World War Two, mm-hmm. or you know who are the axis power. It it's not a multiple choice test. But for civilization, for me, it's it's the basic concepts of how a civilization starts, how it is put together, uh, the different forms of government. I break it down into uh, civics, people, geography, and um, culture. Mm-hmm. And those in those areas, my students have a great understanding of how religion and science and math uh, um, play within a culture. They also understand that civics, you know, involves uh, forms of government and econ- uh, economics and labor and laws. And they understand those major concepts. That, to me, is far more important of how something, how a civilization is put together than understanding, you know, um, you know who was the fifth uh, emperor um, in, in Rome. Right. But yet we still have tests that talk about that ask questions. Like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. Right. No, I I think all teachers are struggling with this, um, you know, Monday someday problem. Seem that uh, that's uh, you know I I think I think that's attributed to Seymour Papert, who's you know one of my heroes in this in this area and thinking through this. Um, I have some quotes from him in in the blog post talking about this. Is teachers are put are being put in a terrible situation. You know, they know what they want to do someday. But the kids are showing up Monday and they're going to be tested on the fifth emperor of Rome. And so how do you get out of that trap? And I know what what Dr. Papert said was that it's really important to have a vision of someday so that you can make sure that what you do on Monday is at least a step on that path. Yeah. If you don't have that eye on the prize, even though you're not you're not there yet. You know, if you don't have that vision, you'll just sort of wander all over the place. This is almost sounding biblical, but uh, <laughs> well, it is Easter. It week. is Easter. Yes, it is Passover, and and Passover. that uh, yes, you know, that is a it is a metaphor for wandering the desert. If you don't have, uh, you know, a place you're headed, you will wander in the desert. Yes. So we do agree that um, that games can help learning, and it can give you. Uh, it can personalize that learning too, because you have you might have different levels, uh, you might have different levels of difficulty, and there might be certain concepts that are that are part of that part of that game that you as a as an instructor want the students to learn. Why aren't there so many more education games out there? Because we know that you know the the Khan Academy is kind of this. Uh, linear path it, it's it's the straight and narrow but games allow for a broader spectrum do, i mean does that make sense or well does... i think there's certain kinds of games that allow for a broader spectrum there's certainly a ton of things called educational games that are just multiple uh-huh. choice tests in disguise yes um and khan shoot academy these shoot you know, these asteroids where you know one plus one and then you shoot the shoot. two yeah. the, the number two asteroid right there's no number sense involved. There's there's nothing other than you're solving a multiple choice problem. Right. Um, 
Khan Academy has done this thing, you know, this gamification where you answer 10 questions in a row and you get a badge. And, you know, I, I think that's kind of really low level. So when you say, do I agree that games do anything? Uh, you kind of have to define games. I mean, yes. there's so many different kinds. When you're talking about civilization, yes, a, a, a teacher can create, can use that game as the starting point for collaborations, for conversations, for reflection, for writing, for you know all kinds of things that can be built around the game. Um, because the learning may or may not be happening in the game. There's lots of kids who can go through a game and just sort of game the game in essence you know they're right. not really thinking about it they're just figuring out well i get more gold if i do this certain thing and they're not thinking about well that's because i've put the iron mine close to the iron ore and therefore that's a a metaphor that i can kind of carry to other issues you know to to rome or to why did, did germany rise in power you know answer other questions they're just thinking of it as points Right. You know, so it's but a teacher can help teacher. guide that. Yeah, exactly. It's the skill of the teacher to to ask the kids to reflect on things in verbally in written assignments, and with with the with the aim of bringing those kinds of points to the forefront. I mean, you don't just need to lecture the kids and say, "Well, look, you put the iron or mine there, therefore this happened." You know, but the the kids could talked with each other and say, why did you put it there? And why did you put it there? And, oh, look what happened. Now I get it. You know? Yeah. So and, it's and not then, just the game. Right. And something like World of Warcraft, which I never even thought of, which Lucas Gillespie out in North Carolina um, and with his wonderful staff there have created um, a creative – they put a creative writing uh, mm -hmm. aspect and and – a unit together using World of Warcraft. So you need that. Um, you need the professional that's there to help guide along. You could have a kid play a game, but yeah, you're right. It, it doesn't mean that they're going to learn, and doesn't mean that the game is uh, perfect for you know learning itself. So how do we you know, get? And, and here's another thing: is is a lot of these games give kids something very important that, especially in the middle school years. They're really struggling with their own identity. Who am I as a person? Mm -hmm. You know, in World of Warcraft, you can you can choose. You can be, uh, you know, a very powerful warlike being. You can rely more on on your smarts. You can rely on magic. Um, virtual worlds allow you to shape your own identity in a way that isn't possible in real life when you're with the kids who already know you and have already kind of put pigeonholed you and you've pigeonholed yourself and you know, you can go be a mighty orc for a couple of weeks. I mean, how cool is that? And yeah. write about that experience and yeah. and put that out there as a different kind of identity, an aspect of your personality that you might not have ever thought about before. Right. It's very cool. It is cool. But why aren't there more? I mean, these are off the shelf games. Mm -hmm. um, why aren't there more education games out there? Oh, it's that economics, really. I mean, you talk about a game like World of Warcraft, um, it's millions and millions of dollars, mil you know, tens of millions, maybe hundreds of millions of dollars that have gone into de development of these games. Um, I think a console game now, the, the average development cost for an A-list game is 20 to $50 million. And then another, you know, 
that much at least has to be spent on marketing and, you know, putting games in stores and buying ads and on TV and everything to, to really sell the numbers. Um, you know, the school market just isn't that big. You can have a hit that sells in one week. And I think this was true about Halo when the last one came out. Um, I ran some numbers and it, the first week Halo sold more units than there are teachers in the United States about 4 million. So, you know, when you're asking a company to look at a market and say, you're going to spend a cheap game could cost $5 million. You're going to spend $5 million and the entire audience for that game is 4 million teachers. Well, they aren't all going to buy one. Even if 10% of them bought one, you're still, you're barely making your money back. You know, there's only a hundred and 110, 120,000 school buildings in the United States. Um, most of them aren't going to buy more than one or two games. That's a potential market value of $10 million total. Total. Right. right? So, so as a publisher, where are you going to put your money? Right. So do you think the combination of – and then – you know there are there are education gaming so-called companies out there that are putting basically putting garbage out there where it's just the rote memorization, the multiple choice answers. They just put a cover on, um, you know, put a graphic interface thing. on the same old yeah. thing. Well, that's and, the only way to make make your money. You know, right. if, if you've got a character, you know that that parents are going to buy certain things. So now I'm switching to the consumer market versus the school market. You know. They'll buy this year. They'll buy, um, you know, Dora the Explorer counting games. Last year it was Blue's Clues. The year before that it was, you know, some other character. So sure enough, what you see is the same dot to dot, the same matching, dragging yep. the jigsaw puzzle piece. Yep. Um, you know, there's there's very little development that can take place because there's just not enough money in those games to make it worth their while. So uh, is there a way to is there a way to get? Uh, you know, a man. I, I think civilization was just kind of like there was an interest. This is what we're doing, and then people said, "You know what? This could be used for education." Mm-hmm. I'm sure the people of World of Warcraft were never thinking, "Ooh, this could be used for education." <laughs> um, I guarantee you. Yeah. So I worked with a lot of them. Yeah. So it's one of those things that how I mean, does somebody out there kind of merge some of those ideas? And what do they focus on? Do they focus on the education or do they focus on the, the, the game itself? Well, when you're in game development, you, the only thing you can focus on is the user experience. And the user experience has to be fun. I mean, a game has to be this roller coaster ride of, of tension, frustration. It can't be too easy. It can't be too hard. That takes a lot of time and a lot of effort and a lot of people playing you know, beta games over and over and over again to, to figure this stuff out. Um, time is money. Resources are money. It, it, and if you if you try and focus on something else, like stuffing educational content into a game, you lose that, that focus on fun and the game becomes boring. Um, I, I don't know how to, how to, maybe there's some game, I, I call myself a skeptical optimist. Maybe there's some game being developed right now that's going to combine this you know fun and educational experience um right now i think the ones that are commercial games that do focus on fun that and then teachers adapt them for the classroom use i think those are, should be, are the most successful yeah um well my you know, dream 
I, I do have a perfect uh, scenario and dream, but it, it's probably going to take many years down the road. And that's a holodeck. Ah. So, you know, you get the Star Trek holodeck out and then you say, okay, we're learning about uh, Egypt. So let's go into the holodeck and see how they built the pyramids. Mm-hmm. Or we go to um, um, we go to Athens and watch them build the Parthenon, or see them on the on the um, the foothills of Athens, and they're the first democracies. So you know, I see that's like a dream. Um, right, and but, the skeptic you know, in me says it will be used for flying 3D multiple choice questions. <laughs> yes. <laughs> And it probably would be used for many other things that would be totally right. inappropriate. Um, <laughs> okay, but, uh, let's yeah, go but uh, I'm just there. saying. But somebody, but money. It's it's about money. Um, you you know, you see movies that could be in a. You, you watch the movie from being in it. Um, but you, yeah, that's like I said, that's that's a dream of mine. So that's where you know something like Civilization, uh, other games where you're actively part of it, uh, even though it's a 2D or 3D, you know little universe um you know that's that's better than just having you know the game wise rather than having 3d flying multiple choice questions oh come on it'll be fun oh yeah yeah Ooh, look at that it. yeah well let's put it in 3d because that's going to be better yep yeah oh my goodness well is there anything else um we covered a lot and <laughs> part two uh this is good sylvia <laughs> But I think part one was a little better. <laughs> I oh, feel that's bad. just mean. Because, no. you know, this is our, like, the secret lost episode now. Oh, that that's no right. one could ever, of course it was better. No one will ever be able to judge. Nobody will. It was much better. It was amazing. <laughs> I think, uh, would it be yeah, a the Grammy? Titanic thing. And, you yeah. know, it's just like, yeah. Yeah. Coming up with the title is going to be a little bit more difficult on this one. But uh, I, I can't thank you enough and apologize enough uh, for messing up the first time recording. Jerry had to bail on us. He had some family things to take care of, which is totally understandable. But, uh, yeah, there's definitely some things that we need to talk about in the future. Um, and that's especially about ge- uh, Generation Yes. And also the idea that I had in the other show which was, you know, you go off to college and certain professors require you to buy certain materials for that class. You know, with one-to-one coming into my school district, do I have, would I be able to have the option down the road where the students, you know, buy civilization or something else that uh, I would require them to have in order to be in my classroom? Uh, and that brings up a whole can of worms. Um, right. The whole you know, good and bad. adoption, educational materials, funding, how that funding. gets chosen, and distributed, reproduced, lunch, students. who yeah. owns it? Are we asking students to now buy their own materials? Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, how do we do so, that in a public school? It's big questions, tough. big questions, but I, I think that would be a wonderful conversation. So thank you for listening to this week's Ed Gamer podcast. Please follow us on edreach.us and also follow all the great podcasts and blog posts on the EdReach network. Have a great week.